I invite you to take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to Psalm chapter 49. Kids, uh, as you may recall, the Psalms are the largest book in the Bible and in the middle of the Bible, so sometimes you can just almost turn right to the middle and hit the Psalms. Um, As we turn to God's Word, let's uh, return to Him one more time in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful that you do not leave us uh, without a way. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and uh, no, none of us come to you except through him. And so, Father, we thank you that this word before us reveals our Savior. Father, be pleased to help us by your spirit know your word. And put it into practice, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the calendar says it's still summer for four weeks, and so we will be in the Psalms, in our summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms, picking up, again, where we left off. Um, We've got to make a few comments uh, briefly about the Psalms before we get into Psalm 49, but the Psalms... uh, occupy or should occupy uh, an important place both in the corporate worship of the church and the all-of-life worship of the Christian. The Psalms are songs, 150, divided into five books, and they're familiar, but they're also foreign. They were written over a period of 1,200 years from the 15th through the 3rd century B.C., They are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. It's a hymn and prayer book for the church. Martin Luther referred to the Psalms as a little Bible, a Bible in miniature. As you know, the Psalms are diverse, and yet they are unified because they're centered on the one true and living God. He is in every Psalm. And they express the divine human encounter As it were, as God comes down and man goes up. Psalms don't look like narrative. They're not. They're poetry. And poetry requires all of us to slow down. And as such, our minds are informed. Our emotions are aroused. Our imaginations are stimulated. And our wills are directed. And when we read the Psalms, not because it's an assignment not because it's something to check off the the list, but when we read the Psalms with faith, by the mysterious transforming work of the Holy Spirit, we, we walk away not just informed, but really changed, because we're encountering God's word, his word to us. Now, the church doesn't need exclusive psalmody. There are some denominations out there that all they sing are the Psalms. I don't think that's really uh, the teaching of Scripture when it speaks of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And and so we practice inclusive psalmody. We include the psalms as a part of worship, not necessarily every Sunday, but hopefully frequently. And what is worship? Well, true worship, of course, is biblically grounded and guided, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. Notice it's not only worship of the triune God, but the triune God is is central to how we worship. The Psalms promote not just corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but also, as I've said, all of life worship. As, as uh, Paul writes in, in uh, Romans, in view of God's mercy, 
Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual act of worship. Psalms are a precious treasure for the church, and we neglect them to our detriment, and we give attention to them to our great benefit of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Now, here in Psalm 49, as I've mentioned, it is a wisdom psalm. It's the last of the psalms of the sons of Korah in book two. We saw that start in Psalm 42, and it's going to end here in Psalm 49. It's a wisdom meditation. It has parallels with wisdom literature like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And in doing so, it speaks to man, not to God. It's similar to Psalm 1, the gateway into the entire Psalter. Here in Psalm 49, it reflects the word the world of Proverbs, and it's going to contrast two kinds of people, foolish people, wise people, wicked people, righteous people, faithful people, unfaithful people. And here in Psalm 49, the psalmist doesn't just address his fellow Israelites, his fellow believers, as it were, as we saw in the case with David's Psalm, Psalm 37, but rather he addresses all people. Again, it's not a prayer or a praise, but it's instruction and exhortation in view of a common problem, as we will see. Now, as the postcard for the church says, to be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? You see, everybody worships and everybody has faith. There is nobody out there that doesn't have faith. Everybody trusts something or someone. And so with worship, with trust, with faith, it's the object. Because humans worship, humans have faith, humans trust. And Psalm 49, I believe, will ask a question to all of us. In what or in whom do you trust with your life, in particular, your life after death? in view of the inescapable reality of death. And in doing so, it's going to address the issue of wealth initially. Now, for those of you familiar with um, the Bible, know that especially Jesus, in his teaching, in his parables, he says a lot about wealth. A lot about wealth. You can't serve God and money. It's like the parable of the rich fool. If you're not rich toward God, but yet rich toward the temporary possessions of earth, you're a fool and your life will be demanded of you. Now, as I was thinking about trust and wealth, it dawned on me that this quarter that I had in my pocket uh, last night, here it is wealth or a monetary currency, a use of exchange, all you economists could really say what it really is. But you know, it's money, but it also has a strange statement on it, doesn't it? What does it say? In God we trust. Now, that's interesting, is it? Now, I couldn't read it. My vision is bad, so I happen to have a, a, a dollar coin. And that was helpful because in God we trust was... was um, was a bit larger and I could read it. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because most of us trust, or at least I do, it's almost easier to trust this in my hand than what the words in God we trust are pointing to. 
This psalm was a tough one to translate. Um, the Hebrew is really, really hard. Um, it's hard to understand, especially at first. Um, but as with all wisdom literature, you spend time in it, and God is pleased to, to open it up, so to speak. And so after spending quite a bit of time in Psalm 49, I, I found an approach that I trust will be helpful to all of us. Um, we're going to consider an announcement that the psalmist makes. We're going to consider a warning he issues. And finally, we'll consider a promise he declares. Let's look at the announcement the announcement, and basically in a word, he says, wisdom is available. Let's listen to the first four verses. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. The opening words uh, do they grab your attention? Uh, hear this, give ear. In other words, pay attention, uh, listen. It's the old, hear ye, hear ye. It's, again, it's directed to all people, but it's like, hear, O Israel. It's like, Jesus, listen. Listen. And the announcement is universal. We see that in verses 1 and 2. It speaks to all men everywhere in their common humanity. And this announcement is urgent. In verses 3 and 4, he, four times he says what he's going to do, he expresses it. He'll speak wisdom. He'll, he'll provide understanding. He'll turn his ear to a proverb. Uh, he'll solve um, a riddle. It's universal. It's important. It's important because it concerns wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. Uh, genuine spiritual percep perception. The ability to approach life from God's perspective. It's an indicator of true and genuine faith. Wisdom enables you to distinguish something that's minor from something that's major. I'm always drawn to Proverbs 26 where it says, Answer, not a fool. Or say, excuse me, answer a fool, and then it turns around and says, answer not a fool. Well, how do you know? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to know. And that's what the psalmist is providing. And this wisdom and understanding grows. When someone comes to faith in Christ, we don't get the download of complete wisdom, complete understanding. We start off, as it were, as newborn babies in Christ, and we grow and mature, and wisdom and understanding come and grow. Again, this psalm offers instructions to men rather than worship to God. We need to learn what God's Word is teaching us today. Um, here, he's going to expound a proverb or a riddle, something that's not immediately obvious, but it needs reflection. It needs to be thought about. And interestingly, we, we see in verse 4, to the music of the lyre, or most translations, to the music of the harp, traditionally an instrument of joy. Now we will see that this is a sober song, but it has a joyful message. So after making this announcement, 
that wisdom is available. The psalmist issues a warning, and we see that in verses 5 through 12. Let me go ahead and just read all of it, and then we'll take a look and comment on it. The psalmist says this, Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Although they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. In a word, the warning is this, wealth cannot save. Cannot save from what? From, from death. Here, in this section, he's looking toward death. And he asks an important question, why should I fear? Why should I fear? And we've seen that before in a number of psalms. The psalmist why should you fear peoples? Why should we be afraid? And he answers that question. And here, after asking that very important question, why should I fear? And he's admitting, right? But he's tempted to fear, if not actually fearing. He, he answers it immediately. And he see, we see that in verses 7 through 9 that speak of man cannot ransom another. He can't give to God the price of his own life. Because life is valuable and costly, and who could pay it? Who could pay it? It's, uh, it's life is valuable, yet man is limited in his ability to pay for his life or pay for another life. Because you see, he's already going to be thinking about something that Paul expresses clearly in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. And we know how sin entered the world. We read it in Genesis 3. He's got an important question. There's an immediate answer. But now he draws attention to the obvious. In verses 10 and 11, there's a universal recognition. Everyone dies. Rich, poor, wise, foolish, stupid. Everyone dies. You know, it's obvious, but obviously the psalmist felt it important to draw attention to it. And, and I was thinking, uh, we've hit a lot of things in Mark and Acts and um, Galatians, uh, you name it. We, we run across death and, you know, man either ignores it, tries to avoid it, sentimental, sent, sentimentalizes death. But death is a given, Man is born, he lives, he dies. And in, and in the pre-modern world, I think death was up close. You know, the black plague, the black death. There was death everywhere. Uh, you walked through the graveyard to the front door of the church. But then the modern world came around and, and death becomes kind of sanitized. There's funeral homes and undertakers and, and, and you... you, you um, you subcontract out the messiness of death, and you don't have to think about it as much. 
And now we're sort of in a postmodern world. And it's interesting. I think, for me at least, death is actually no longer sanitized, as it were. It's up close and personal. Not necessarily immediate family, but of course all of us experience that. An immediate family member, a loved one dies, a dear friend dies. But just this past week, an Anglican priest from, from uh, Nashville, 50 years old, with his 22-year-old daughter, headed out on a 10-week sabbatical, 20 miles from their home, auto accident, killed. A U.S. Army veteran outside of Houston, Texas, had some gallstone problems. He lived just a few doors down from an emergency room. They didn't have the ability to treat him. They needed to get him to a, a more specialized place with an intensive care unit. They couldn't find one. Something that was treatable. He died. Death by the 24-7 news availability is actually, I think, more close to us now in many ways than ever before. We know of people dying that we don't even know. 13 service members in Kabul Almost 200 Afghans. And who knows how many people just died yesterday in the United States and in the world. And all those people who die, what do they leave behind? Everything. You know, the saying is true, you can't take it with you. Now I'm speaking, of course, in material terms. It's that rich landowner, that rich farmer. He couldn't take it with him. And so this first section ends with a refrain. In verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. He, he, he concludes, wealth is not going to be able to keep you alive. Wealth is not going to rescue you from death pomp some translations say honor i think the new international version says riches man in his self-made self will not remain it's the futility here of trusting in wealth it's unstable it's here today and gone tomorrow i think we all know that and yet human life is so valuable and so deeply and we're so deeply in debt because of sin that that no humanly procured ransom is sufficient to save us from death, which again is the wages of sin. And left to ourselves and on our own, we all die like animals. And I think that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to grasp with. How is man different than the beast? But our psalmist here, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. Well, after presenting this warning, the psalmist goes on to declare a promise. A promise that God will save from death. And here, instead of looking toward death, he's looking beyond death. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boast. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. 
with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though, while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you yourself, when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Notice he says this, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. You see, he's talked about wealth, but wealth is just one manifestation of any number of things. It's foolish confidence. It's trust in self. It's what it boils down to. And and by saying it like this, the psalmist is opening it up. And the reader, you and me, are asked this question. Are we foolishly confident? It may not be wealth. May it be reputation. May it be the job we have, the neighborhood we live in, our connections, our academic ability. Foolish confidence. Trust in self. Uh, It's from the specific trust in wealth to the general. Trust in self. Wealth, again, is just an example. And look, it speaks of, well, you may not be rich, or you may not yourself really be able to identify where you're foolishly confident, but are you approving of people who are? Are you following them? Are you drawn to people who boast in who they are, what they do, and what they have? And look at the imagery he uses in verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, the the world of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd. Now, wait a minute. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and here... The psalmist is using imagery that death is their shepherd. Death will lead them. Death, as it were, will care for them. In fact, this is kind of the shepherds in Ezekiel, I believe, 34, that that the Lord tells, rebukes the leaders of Israel for, for not being good shepherds, but instead of shepherds that prey on the flock. And death, of course, as a shepherd, preys on the flock. But here in this section, we see the promise and we see confidence in the promise and we see that in verse 15. But God, but God, it's the the two words that show a major change. It's, it's, It's the but God of Ephesians. But God, when we were dead in sin and trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. It's but God. It's a mountaintop here of Old Testament hope. You see, God will distinguish the faithful from the unfaithful, the righteous from the unrighteous, the wise from the foolish. All men 
as the psalmist says, have a common destiny, death. But you see, death is going to lead into one or two destinations. Here, verse 15 provides the answer to the negative of verse 7. Because here, God will ransom my soul. Most translations say redeem, and and ransom and redeem, uh, same expression. It's a verb used in the Old Testament for the rescue of a slave or a captive and the redemption of a person or an animal from death by payment either of a substitute or of money. He will ransom my soul, the soul, the principle that animates the body, the inner self, but here it's being used, of course, as describing what survives the death of the body. But not only does the psalmist declare that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, death, destruction, darkness, for he will receive me. Now, if you go back into your Old Testament in Genesis 5, verse 24, with Enoch, it's the same word of God receiving Enoch. He walked with God and then was with God. It's the same verb used in 2 Kings 2, 3, and 5 when it talks about Elisha taken up and being received by God. And notice the pronouns here. My soul, he will receive me. You see, for the psalmist, this rescue, this redemption, this payment of a ransom, it's not abstract. It's not unknown who is doing it. It's personal. Rescue is personal. I mean, I can't but think again back to Saul on the road to Damascus. He had the scriptures of the Old Testament. He was a master of the scriptures of the Old Testament. He knew That God was the one who saves. He knew Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. He knew that. But he didn't know Jesus. Who? That's why he could later say, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. We don't know the name of this psalmist. But he knows enough to know. That God will ransom his soul and will receive him. You see, this wise representative Israelite knows that he can't redeem himself from the wages of sin. And so he trusts in the covenant God to redeem him from death. This is in seed form in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the flower is in full bloom. The psalmist is wanting us to know that self-reliance, however much admired on earth, leads to decay and death, while those who are right with God or those who have a right relationship with God can look forward to redemption from death and being brought in the presence of God. Self-reliance. I mean, living in America... Is a great place, isn't it? We've got so many things to be thankful for, but we also have to work against the tide and work against the um, the overall direction of of independence and being self-made and self-sufficient and self-sustaining. No, we are made to depend upon our Maker. 
we actually evidence that in many ways in how we depend upon one another in the church. And look at verses 16 through 19. There's an important command. Be not afraid. He returns to it, expands on what he said in verse 5 where he said, why should I fear? Now he's saying, be not afraid. He's got an eternal perspective instead of a temporal perspective. He is calling us to walk by faith, not by sight. You see, again, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. It's the same thing in verse 10. His glory will not go down after him. He may think of himself blessed now, but his soul is going to go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Only darkness. My friends, this is a call to courage and clear-sighted faith. And look at the second refrain, the conclusion, verse 20. Now in verse 12, the first refrain we read, will not remain. But here in verse 20, yet without understanding. See, the psalmist now is drawing attention for the absolute need to have understanding. Or, you're not going to be kept alive eternally. You see, between the, the, the first refrain in verse 12 and this last refrain in verse 20, we see the great divide between the two destinations of man. Some go to the grave never to move. Others go to the grave only to be ransomed, rescued, received by God. But we also see between these two stanzas the great promise of verse 15. You see, there is a death without hope. And there's also a death full of hope. The first stanza, verses 5 through 12, explored the futility of human reliance on wealth. And the second stanza, verses 13 through 20, described the fate of those who trust in themselves as well as those who trust in God. Psalm 49 begins with an announcement and it ends with an appeal. It's an appeal to get wisdom, to get understanding. The psalmist is saying this, get wisdom, be wise. James in his letter asked a very good question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Have you ever read that and answered immediately, I am? It's around that time he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Who is wise and understanding among you? We read in Proverbs 4, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you do, get insight. And of course, both the Psalms and the Proverbs say this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can see that this author, this psalmist, has been given wisdom to be able to 
to, to heed the warning, to believe the promise. And so this psalm asks you and me right here, right now, will we heed the warning? Because foolish confidence in wealth or in anything else, fill in the blank, will not save. So will you heed the warning? But will you also believe the promise? Will you believe the promise that God will indeed ransom you, redeem you, rescue you, and receive you? You know, our, it's amazing how the order of worship comes together beyond any planning. Um, how do we have confidence to enter the holy places? How? Only through Jesus. There's no other way. None of us could live up to what is expected and demanded. We've got to have a substitute, a sacrifice, someone in our stead. If we're depending on ourselves or anything to be right with God, when our eyes close in death, we're going to wake up in a world that we do not want to be in. So where do we find wisdom? Where do we find understanding that we need? You know, the Psalms and indeed all of the Old Testament, it leans forward to the coming of the Messiah. Here's how Paul speaks of the Messiah. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom? You want knowledge? It's in Christ. He writes to the Corinthian church that Christ... Jesus of Nazareth is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. You want wisdom? You want understanding? It's found in Jesus. And remember, the writer to the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. My friends, that is great news, isn't it? Absolutely wonderful news. You know, isn't it a bit ironic again that this instrument of monetary exchange, and if you get a lot of these, you're considered wealthy, right? Isn't it interesting that on this source or a of wealth are the words in God we trust. So we have a choice. Do we have a choice? We have a choice between what our physical eyes can see, like life is good if I have a lot of these, or do we trust what we can only see through the eyes of faith? My friends, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus spoke these words, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, if we know God for who he is, 
we will trust God. And we will know and trust who the Father has sent for us and for our salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 49. We thank you that it is in your word and that it is a clear call to heed a warning and to believe a promise. And Father, it clearly asks all of us the question, in what or in whom do we trust? Father, we echo the man whose son Jesus healed, who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, Father, be pleased to strengthen our faith. Be pleased to remove the blindness from our eyes that we could see you for who you are. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.